It is kind of a, one of the fun things of adulthood, I think, is when you grow up and you start uh, taking the family traditions that were part of your growing up and installing them in your family with your kids and, and talking to your friends and you find out, you actually find out the things in your family that were weird that you didn't know were weird, right? And you kind of, you thought that all families were like this. And, and some of the things are really good, like you thought all families were as loving as your family, and then you f- grow up and you find out that that's not true, or you think that all families are as dysfunctional as your family, and you find out maybe that's not true. And so you maybe get this embarrassment, or you find some hope, or you find some dismay, or whatever. And when we talk about our church a lot, it's kind of, happened over time that people use the words I'm Grove family and uh, it's not something that we necessarily like started or said we're going to be like a family it's more been something that has happened over time and uh, we're going to spend the next month actually talking about what it means to be Grove and what it means to be a part of that Grove family you all have people who come over to your house, right? And there's some people that come over to your house and they're definitely not family. Like they are guests, right? And they, uh, so you like clean and uh, do those kinds of things. Uh, vacuum maybe if they're really important and stuff like that. But you will clean up your house and stuff all the dirty dishes into the dishwasher or the oven and hope that they don't turn it on. And uh, <laughs> right, it's true. So it's how you know how welcome you are. Just when the you're when you're over at someone's house, they're not looking. Open their oven and then close it. And if it's full of dirty dishes, they think you're important because they hid them. <laughs> but uh, there is. You also have friends though who come over and and they just. You probably have friends that come over and they don't even knock on the door, right? They just kind of knock, knock, open, walk in. Hey, I'm here. And you're like, all right. And, and they, when they want to drink, they know where the cups are in the cupboard. They don't have to ask and those kinds of things. They just, uh, you, we probably have, we all have friends that go past kind of that social norm. Uh, I used to be a pastor that, of a church that had a building and, and we had an office and we had a guy that would come in and go to sleep on our couch. Uh, just like in, it wasn't my office at the time, it was my friend's office. And this guy came in and sat down and just closed his eyes and went to sleep. And he came into my, he was a guy who goes to the church and the, my friend came into my office and said, hey, there's a guy snoring on my couch right now. <laughs> like, you, I don't, if you have friends like that who just come over and are like, hey, I just need a nap. Can I use the, one of the beds in your house? That, that might be too far. You know, that might be a time when that guy thinks he's a little too close to your family. Uh, but there is this kind of social norm that is what a family is. And for a lot of us, family is like blood. Some of us make families uh, out of people that are really close to us. They're so close, they're, you call them family and those kinds of things. And, 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 uh, and, and part of that like, is social change or cultural change. And part of that is, is just the way that life is. And we need families around us. If you think about it, it's kind of a strange thing. Like you're randomly born to these adult-ish people and, uh, and, and, and you're, they're going to love you because you happen to exist and you mildly look like them, and uh, hopefully. And, uh, but there's, there's, there's this uh, just kind of randomness to family, and you're going to love these adults for the rest of your life, and these adults are going to love you, 
hopefully for the rest of your life. And it's just kind of this uh, strange invention that God made. I think it's strange. Maybe you think it's normal, but uh, just that we would be in groups and in units. And there's something about us, like when someone's in a family that isn't functioning in a healthy way, they feel that. And, and there's this weird desire in it to like be healthy and be in a healthy family structure. And, and we want to tend towards that. Uh, even if we're the unhealthy ones, we would prefer to be healthy. And, and so there's this family dynamic that happens for all of us and this family dynamic that we want. And when we think about that in terms of church, there are people for whom the Grove is their family. And the family means, if you're in my family at my house, you have responsibilities. You contribute to the well-being and the health and, the, and the, whatever success is, the success of the family. We have acceptable behaviors and, and we have unacceptable behaviors in our family. We have uh, the ways that we enforce rules or don't enforce rules in our family, right? And, and just like your family. But there's also guests who come to your family, and there's some guests that come all the time and they're really familiar, and there's some guests that come and, and they just show up and they never help with anything and then they leave, and, and it's kind of an awkward thing. And some of us, and I'm, you might feel judged, but that's fine, maybe you need some of that, but some of you just show up and then you bail, right? And, and then I would say that's not family. I would say that's like uh, Airbnb. You're renting a room and you're getting out of here kind of thing. Like you pay your offering to rent your chair. And you pay very little because the chair sucks and then you get out of here, right? And, and you leave a bad review on your Airbnb for churches. But, but there is like, if you feel judged, then maybe you needed to. So, but the... <laughs> The uh, understanding of family and being a part of the Grove family is a direction that I w would hope that you would want to move into. Being a part of this family is significantly better than being a guest of this family. If you're here for the very first time today, we hope that you would come back next week and the week after that and the week after that and find that this church is kind of like a very large, oversized, but still very young family. Uh, our church started like six and a half years ago, something like that. It's getting to where I don't remember. And we kind of started with this idea that uh, church could be something. And we didn't have all our ideas worked out, right? Like we knew we wanted to teach the Bible. We knew we wanted to be honest. We knew uh, we wanted to reach a certain people, right? Like people that were in the neighborhoods and, and uh, in our city. And, and we, we knew that we wanted to be uh, like progressive in our behavior, but still we are conservative in our theology. But our approach to our theology is as inclusive as, as theologically possible. And, and we thought, what if we created this thing and we saw how it went? And it kind of went. Uh, well, they say 80, I don't know who they is, and I don't know where they get this information, but I've read it in magazines, so it must be true, but uh, that like 80% of church plants or church starts fail. 
And, and so we're just by sitting here together in this strange 20%, right? Like we are the cream of the crop. We have reached year five. We've made it. We're amazing, right? And, and, uh, and so you can feel good about sitting here today. Um, but, uh, but there, <clears throat> excuse me, when we think about that, when we like started, our main goal was to survive, right? Uh, we wanted butts in seats, and I would never say that from up here, but that's what I said when I wasn't wearing a microphone. How do we get more butts in seats? Because if we don't have butts in seats, we die, right? And so we'd set up less rows. If you were here at the beginning, there was way less rows, and we moved the coffee way up, and, and we kind of tricked you into thinking it was full when it wasn't. We needed more butts in seats. And uh, now we're kind of running out of chairs each week and trying to figure that out. So the butts in seats, we actually need less butts in seats and more people standing in random serving areas. So we'll do that more. But uh, when we think about that, people started wanting to grow spiritually. And we basically had this, our, our main plan was, we hope that works out for you. All right? Like growing spiritually wasn't something we thought about. It was surviving was what we thought about. And growing spiritually, we hope that happens, right? Like it was, it was like Barack Obama's first campaign, hope, right? And you can decide, you probably have an opinion on how that worked out, depending on which end of a drone strike you're on. But there is a, <laughs> but um, I can't believe the preacher said that. When I say that, you forget all the stuff I said about judging. You forget that I'm down with Carolina. <laughs> Now I've gone to <coughs> global drone strikes, in, but I'm not American either, and that makes it even more offensive. There you go. But, so if you're here and you're offended, we hope that you understand that's the way family works. <laughs> but we just kind of, we didn't really have a, a, a plan, and we've worked over time to try to just, like, figure out how do people grow spiritually at the Grove, and not a thing where we say, okay, here's our plan, and we have installed this plan on, on the people, but we've kind of developed a strategy for spiritual growth because that would be my desire for everyone, that you would be growing spiritually. Uh, and so we've developed this kind of strategy for spiritual growth uh, more out of what we've observed of how people are growth and how people are growing spiritually here at the growth. And you might be here and you're very young spiritually or, or very immature would be the word the Bible uses as far as following Jesus and that's very novel to you and you haven't experienced a lot of that. You might have been following Jesus longer than this church has existed or longer than I've been alive. And, and the, but for both people, we would hope that you would be growing spiritually and meaning you would be taking more risk with your faith, not less. That you would be in engaging in a more dynamic way with Jesus, not more, not less. That your life would not be more steady, but more adventurous. That you wouldn't feel more secure, but more dependent on Jesus. And so when we talk about what it means to be Grove, is, is we see Grove as being, or being a part of the Grove family, as being a people whose lives are being changed by Jesus. And that's kind of the definition of who we are. We are not a people that have it all together. Sometimes we bring up things inappropriately in sermons. It happens. <laughs> Sometimes we, are, we 
fall apart. Sometimes we react in ways that we're not proud of. We're not a people that claims, or a church that claims to be there. But we'll go there. <laughs> we'll see what happens when we follow Jesus somewhere. Uh, we'll kind of depend on him and obey him. And when that falls apart, we love repenting and turning back and depending on the cross and the shed blood of Christ, which purifies our uncleanness and presents us to God pure without anything that hinders our relationship with God. And so when we think about our family and think about growth and we think about actually having a strategy for spiritual growth here at the Grove, we've narrowed it down to these four things. And this month in February, we're going to talk about those four things. And today we're going to talk about the first one, and it's on the cover of your uh, program. It's uh, that you care for your church by serving. You care for your church by serving. Uh, we see part of when we started was this another statistic, and they're all 80-20, so they're all probably lies, but uh, there's apparently 20% of people in a normal church do 80% of the work. And we thought, what if we like change that around to where we just had an expectation of everybody serves? And I knew we were getting close to successful one time. There was a wife who was coming to our church and she was getting her husband to come and her husband was very resistant to the gospel. And he said, it's so strange. I go there and every week they're like, you need to serve, you need to participate. And whether it's in the church or out of the church, they always want me to do something. And that complaint let me know that we were doing the right thing, <laughs> right? Like people are gonna complain all the time. It's what they complain about that tells me we're doing the right thing. I had someone complain that I preached too much grace one time. And I was like, score, right? Like, that is exactly where I want to be. Like, uh, there is so much grace for you that God loves you no matter where you are. And that was offensive to someone. And I was like, that is exactly the second kind of person I want to offend. The first person is someone who takes uh, politics too seriously, apparently. But I want to just, I'm kind of going to do two sermons today, though, um, and the first one isn't going to be on the PowerPoint. The first one is just something that I kind of want to share, um, just as a quick story that will lead into these four things uh, that's caring for our church by serving today being the first one, and then we'll talk about the other ones week to week as it goes through, and you'll kind of see how I think and we think, because uh, we've done this with our, a bunch of leaders from our church. Uh, how a person grows spiritually at the Grove. But I want to go back, just take a couple steps back and read a bit of a story to you. Our church has gone through a lot of change. You might not have noticed things, but a lot of things have changed in the last uh, year or two years just as far as how we do things and how we structure things and the way ministries work and just leading up to this uh, kind of strategy for spiritual growth that we have. And, and we have actually structured our church where we could actually like physically handle 50% growth next week. Like if everybody invited someone and 50% of those people said yes next week, we could 100% handle that. And you might be like, oh, we don't have chairs. That's the smallest problem, all right? We actually can handle that many children, and that's important. Uh, we can handle that much parking, and that's important. We can handle all of those things. If there's people standing up and and they're like, oh, I don't like standing in church, well, then we haven't lit the fire bright enough, and they'll stand. Everybody will be fine. If you'll stand for a Blazers game, you'll stand for church, right? Like, I mean, the Blazers? Come on. 
right? <laughs> That's such a weak comparison, but anyways, uh, it makes me frustrated. Um, this is Judges chapter 7, and I'm going to read this story to you, and I want to kind of share about it a little bit just from my heart, and then I'll share the actual sermon in a minute. Uh, Judges is a, a book in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, and, and in Judges was a time when there was no like real leader of the Israelite people, and so it was just kind of like the strongest dude got to be in charge, and, and sometimes that was a woman, and sometimes that was a man, and sometimes they were a good guy, and sometimes they were very violent kind of guy, um, but and sometimes they were pansies, and sometimes they were very tough. It just kind of was the way things worked out. Uh, they all seem to have very short, ineffective reigns as judges over the people. They weren't kings, though. They were just judges. This is about a guy named Gideon. Uh, it says, early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod, uh, which is not King Herod, it's spelled differently. The camp of the Midian, which was their enemies, was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. And the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me in her own strength, that, has, that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So he was going to announce to his army, Anybody who's scared about this upcoming battle, we're going to give you an honorary discharge right now and you can go home. <laughs> Guess how that went. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. Two-thirds of the army said, um, yes, I'm scared of someone killing me. Goodbye. What's awesome is 10,000 guys went, oh, I'm in. <laughs> I don't know if you are, have ever been around 10,000 guys who go, whatever, I'm in, I'm not scared. That's awesome, right? Like, it's a destructive force. 10,000 guys who are in with something can do a lot of damage, all right? The problem is there were a lot more Midianites and 10,000 against a lot more, mm, even if you're committed, maybe not the most effective force. But the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them there for, for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say uh, that this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Uh, 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths, and all the rest got down on their knees to drink, which apparently is a, they hadn't invented water fountains. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that, that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other men go, each to their own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. <laughs> now, so you know, if you're in the army, the trumpet isn't usually the thing that you think I want to pick up. <laughs> God takes an army of 30,000 down to 300, and he actually says, what I can do with these 300 will actually glorify me rather than you. And the 300 actually set up this kind of strange battle plan and uh, go in and defeat the Midianites, and, and you can t it's a happy ending to the story. Well, happy for... The 300, not so happy for the Midianites. But God 
wanted to glorify himself through the smallness of what he was going to use. He could have glorified himself by saying, look, I've pulled together 30,000 men who are committed to what I'm down with, and with those 30,000, I will overwhelm. It's kind of a strange dynamic because we think that if we had a church of 30,000, then, and seriously, if we had a church of 30,000, we would run things. If we had 30,000 people showing up at our church on a Sunday, we would be in charge of everything. Not just in charge of the other churches, we'd be in charge of, I'd be on TV in Albany and I'd have a spinning globe behind me, <laughs> right? My wife would get hair that's really big and a strange color. <laughs> that's where we're going when we get to 30,000. That's like the real life plan. Now, not the hair. I'm getting a spinning globe, though. I'm getting a spinning globe. It might be small, but I'm getting that. When we get a building, I'm going to put a globe, and every few points I'll come back, spin, and then keep preaching. Spin. And, and we've really made it when we hire a guy to spin it for me. <laughs> you can tell this isn't from my notes. But God actually takes these people, and God's can do something with 300 committed people that he couldn't do and didn't want to do with the 30,000. And it's interesting because we're just about 300 committed adults here at this church. And we think, oh, if we had 1,000 or we had 30,000, oh, we'd be something. And God looks at us, and you need to know that a church in the place that this church is isn't supposed to be successful. Like, the Pacific Northwest is the most godless place in America. And when you're trying to reach people, you don't try to reach the people. Like, we met with people, other pastors, when we were like, we want to be in church in North Albany, and we want to reach people like North Albany. And, and everybody has this image of what North Albany is, you know, that they're all, they drive Bentleys and have security systems and all that kind of stuff. I don't see very many Bentleys when I live up here, but a lot of joggers. And I'm like, you should just get a Bentley and you would drive that. But, <laughs> but when I talked to other pastors, they said the hard part about reaching people who have things is that they don't think they need anything. And so they don't think they need Jesus. And it's a real and true thing. There's something called liberation theology, which I kind of believe that says God like favors the poor and the outcast. And if you read the scripture, it's kind of true, like you can kind of see it. And, and if God favors those people, then there's a natural inference that God is against the rich and the powerful. And if you live around here, even if you're the poorest person here, you're among the rich and the powerful in a global sense. And so we're like, let's reach the people who the odds are stacked against them that they would ever follow Jesus. Like, and that's, just so you know, you. You having a relationship with Jesus is a miracle in itself because of the amount of stuff you have. Even if you're the poorest person here, like seriously, the stuff that we have, biblically, stacks the odds against us following Jesus. 
Like I hear these testimonies all the time that are like, I was on heroin, I was living in a culvert under the road, and Jesus came to me, right? And everyone's like, that's amazing, right? And I want to hear one that says like, I'm loaded. Like I have more money than I know what to do with, right? Like I, I just, I, I burn money for heat because I don't know what to do with all my money, and Jesus saved me. That's a miracle, right? Of course you're going to turn to Jesus if you're an addict. You've got no other... Now, let me back up. Because this sounds like I don't want addicts to follow Jesus. I do, all right? But when someone gives me a testimony, it's like, ah, I was wrecking my life. Well, of course you turn to Jesus. You sucked at life, right? But if I want to hear someone over here that says, I am awesome at life, like I am killing it, and Jesus saved me. Is that offensive yet? Like, I'm just going to go there today, all right? Because I expect, like I expect at your low moments for you to turn to Jesus. I expect that. When there's a crisis in your life, you're going to turn to Jesus because obviously you can't handle what you've gotten yourself into or, or what's happened to you, whether you've done it or it's happened to you. You're in a bad place and Jesus is a lifeline. That's a great thing. But can you imagine the amount of grace that it takes for God to reach you when you're killing it. As a country, we turn to Jesus at times like 9-11, when there's mass shootings, when there's crisis, when there's wars. We're, we gotta turn to Jesus because this is bigger than us. What if we turn to Jesus when the economy's on the upturn, when everybody's got a job, when there's peace in the world, when everybody's being kind? What if we turn to Jesus then? then I would say that that's obviously God working in a way that's unexpected. I expect you to turn to God at some points. Like when I go and I talk to someone who's, my life is falling apart and I say, let's turn to Jesus, they're like, heck yes, because I don't know what else to do. When I talk to someone and they're like, I'm killing it, everything about my life is working, and I say, let's turn to Jesus, their natural response is, I don't understand why I would need that because I'm killing it already. And those are the people that we're going to reach. The people who are killing it. The people who the odds are stacked against them following Jesus. Because those are like my friends and your friends. And I don't mean to be rude, but I don't have a lot of friends who, okay. You, <laughs> that's true also, but you don't have to laugh at me. <laughs> Jerks. All right. Man. That was rude. But now I'm offended, right? Like, you see how this goes? Family. All right. But I don't have a lot, like, I don't hang out a lot of times with people that are on the outskirts of society or with people that are downtrodden or people that who would normally just, I would expect them to turn to Jesus. I don't, that's not my circle, right? Like, and I don't mean that to brag or talk down or whatever. That's just true in my life. When I'm in the community, as much as I can, I tend to meet a lot of other parents of my kids, because my kids do youth sports, and so I spend a lot of time with other parents. I tend to meet parents who have great jobs, who are working on this, working on that, who have a plan for their life, who the plan is working out, and turning to Jesus isn't the thing that they're thinking of fixing my life, because life is working pretty good. And what if the Grove Church reached the most unlikely people to turn to Jesus. 
Like, what if your friends at your job or your friends in your class turn to Jesus even though their life is awesome? Because being a Christian actually changes the whole scorecard over what life is awesome is. Because you can pile up stuff. And I would bet that this is part of why you're following Jesus, because your big pile of stuff didn't fulfill you. And when you follow Jesus, your big pile of stuff doesn't, it might still be there, but your view of it completely changes. Like instead of comparing your big pile of stuff to another big pile of stuff that's bigger, which is something I do all the time and I hate it about myself, I want a spinning globe, right? Fake. But when we actually see our big pile of stuff from the eyes of Jesus, when Jesus has actually changed our lives, it becomes something that we have given to him and, and we start saying, God, what do you want to do with this? And so we want to reach the people who are most unlikely to follow Jesus and then mobilize them in order to do things. This small church that's around 300, we want 300 people who are going to lay down on the ground and lap water from the pond like a dog because we think that God can use them to do something that will glorify God, not glorify us. So, the strategy for spiritual growth, that's sermon number one, and here comes sermon number two. The strategy for spiritual growth is wildly important because God saving you is such an unlikely thing in your life. Like when we sing songs or we pray prayers and you think, it's great that God saved me. Like it is actually incredible that God has saved you. Like if you follow the scripture, and, and I lean into liberation theology, I really do, because I think it is strikingly remarkable that God has decided to share his grace with you, who Jesus would probably not have hung out with us in the Bible. We would have been the people in power who were talking down to Jesus because he was upsetting the religious power structure. Especially me, because I'm a guy who, his job is in the religious power structure. And Jesus comes along and would say things like, Francis Chan said, if Jesus had a church in this town, our church would be bigger. Like, it, it would. If Jesus had a church in this town, it would not have nearly the budget. Uh, it would not have a building, not nearly the building we do. That's sarcasm. But there is, like, an understanding that Jesus' movement in our life is something that should just blow us away, that should cause us to have such an incredible amount of thankfulness and just mercy and grace extending from our lives because of what he has done for us, because it's unexpected. It's not the norm. Let me talk about why you need to serve the church. I'm going to give you a bunch of different scriptures, and so I'm just going to read them off of the uh, PowerPoint so I don't have to turn the page. So if you have an app, it might not move fast enough because I'm going to kind of go through these. I've got six scriptures that I want to talk through. The first is in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 7, and I'm going to read verse 11 as well. In between 7 and 11 is just a list of spiritual gifts, and so I cut that out just so it wouldn't clog up the PowerPoint. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one is the manifestation of the Spirit. Sorry, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit 
is given for the common good. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. If I believe that it's a basic tenet of spiritual growth is that you care for your church by serving your church, then we need to begin at a place that we understand that everyone has gifts. Like everyone is given gifts, and there is an assorted amount of gifts. And some people think it's just the gifts that are listed in the Bible. Some people think the Bible, the list in the Bible, plus other gifts. And, and I'm not, I don't care to argue with the one way or the other, I, because I think everyone is given gifts, and they're given spiritual gifts. And these spiritual gifts are given, and they're actually given for the common good, for everyone uh, working together. And they're given by the Spirit, but they are the work of the Spirit. Meaning, if you're not serving in the church in a way that utilizes your gifts, then you're actually limiting the work of the Holy Spirit in our church. You're actually limiting what can happen by the Holy Spirit, like you are a limiter because you're not using your gifts to serve the church, the gifts that are given for the common good, the gifts that are given for the work of the Spirit in the church. Next verse, 1 Timothy 4.14 says this, Do not neglect your gift. This is actually underlined in one of my Bibles from when I was a teenager. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Now, this is a specific verse written presumably by a guy named Paul to a guy named Timothy. Uh, Paul wrote these letters to uh, Timothy, First and Second Timothy. But he, Timothy's actually given the command not to neglect his gift. And in Timothy's case, his gift was given to him through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Timothy's gift is church leadership, so there was a commissioning that happened in Timothy's life. But he's commanded not to neglect his gift. Like it's a biblical command that's given, and you can say, no, that's just for Timothy. But it appears that neglecting your gift has a negative effect on you and a negative effect on your family if you neglect to use your gift for the common good, for the work of the Spirit in your church. Next verse, Romans 6, 13, says this, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. So no part of yourself. But rather offer yourselves, and some Bibles say your whole selves, to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. It actually talks about offering yourself to God. We offer ourselves to God, but we like to offer parts of ourselves to God, right? Like, I'm going to offer my service to God. I'm going to offer my love to God, my competitiveness and my kind of anger and my short temper. I'm not going to offer those to God. I'm going to hang on to those. And when we offer things to sin, you see, you, offer any, you can offer a part of yourself to sin, and sin will reign over you. But you need to offer your whole self to Jesus, and Jesus will reign over you. If you want to divide your life up into parts, then your only option is sin and death and judgment. But if you want to offer your whole self over to Jesus, then you understand that you've been brought from death to life. Like when Jesus was raised from the dead, his whole self was raised from the dead. Resurrection is about a whole self. So when you 
were saved by Jesus. It wasn't part of you was saved. It was all of you was saved. And so all of you, including your gifts, including your talents, including your abilities, including your experiences, your passions, all of you was saved for God and for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Next verse is from 2 Timothy, the same, this is the second letter written to Timothy. It says this, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands, of my hands, sorry. You see again that commissioning that Timothy had to a specific ministry. But the part I want to focus on here is the fanning into flame the gift of God. A lot, we like to spend a lot of time, like I would bet, you would go home, and if I put a link on Facebook of what's your spiritual gifts, some of you would eat that up, and then you'd post a link, like, I'm an encourager, I'm hospitable, and then tomorrow you would forget, and you would do it again, because we love doing those quizzes that talk about ourselves, right? (laughs) I think it's a better way to find your spiritual gifts by doing stuff. Like, you try doing something, and then you find out if it's your spiritual gift or not. So you volunteer to work with the kids in the kids' ministry, and you find that those kids are eating you alive. Probably not your spiritual gift. You're at the welcome team or our first impressions team, and you're greeting people, and half the people who walk into church say, what's wrong? Because you don't know how to physically smile. Maybe hospitality isn't your spiritual gift, right? (laughs) But if you just do a test, I don't think that tells you everything. You can do a test and find out what Marvel superhero you are. You aren't, right? (laughs) But if you do, if you actually live things out, like you say, am I Spider-Man? You can find out really quick if you're Spider-Man or not, (laughs) right? And you know for sure I'm not Spider-Man. I'm in the hospital, right? (laughs) So you can try doing things. Then when you find what your spiritual gift is, you actually can carry a responsibility to equip yourself and train yourself and grow in your abilities and become better at the thing that you do. So if you work with children or you are on the first impressions team or you drive a truck and are part of the setup and teardown, you actually spend the time on your own, like join an email list or uh, read a book, like fan that flame that you have. Like I have this gift of this thing and I want to get better at this thing. I don't believe in showing up your weaknesses. Like in our family, in my family, there's people who have weaknesses. Like my weakness is just the general kitchen area. I'm not going to shore that up. Like I'm never going to be good at that room and I don't care at all, right? Well, I will care if I outlive my spouse, but uh, if I outlive Heather, I'll be looking for a new wife quick. Like... (laughs) I will be hungry. (laughs) I'm not hungry for what you're thinking. Just hungry, all right? But there is... (laughs) I know you, and I know what you thought when I said that. But I I don't believe in showing up our weaknesses. So you you might be bad at something, and you're like, I need to get better at this thing I'm bad at. And you might not like this. Just ignore it. Like, if you're bad at first impressions, you're bad at children's ministry, don't get better at it. Just walk away from it. Just be like, I am not good at that, and I'm good at this, and I'm going to get better at this over here. 
And it doesn't mean you can be mean. Like when you see a kid and you're mean to them because I'm just not gifted, you know, like, don't be a jerk. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that, oh, I need to spend all this time in this thing that frustrates me so it frustrates me less. It means we fan the flame of the gift that God gave you because God created you to be strong at something and you can be stronger and stronger at that something and contribute more and more to the body and the family of the grove because there's going to be people who are really strong where you're weak and you can celebrate that so much like i i'm a person who struggles with different areas of ministry like i don't work with children with i i can coach them and tell them what to do but when they don't obey me and if i can't bench them i don't know what to do and so when I, I don't work in children. I love those kids, though, and I love our children's workers significantly because they do something that I know I could never do. And I have no interest in ever being good at. Like, I, I'm never going to be a good Sunday school teacher. I'm never going to be good at the first impressions team. I'm just never going to be good at that. And I'm never going to work on it. I'm going to work on preaching. Some of you are like, good, right? But... <laughs> But I work on it all the time because it's a place that God has gifted me and I'm strong in and I'm going to continually get better at. Romans 12, 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. When the New Testament uses the word prophesy, in our culture we use the word preach. So if your gift is preaching, then preach in accordance with your faith. And in the context of this verse... It's actually lists some other things, like if it's this, then do this. If it's this, then do this. Preaching, I don't think, is a particularly good spiritual gift. There are other ones that are more preferable. But when, for a lot of people, but when we have a gift, what's in the context of this verse, and you can read the whole chapter later if you want, the use of your gift is based in accordance with your faith. If you're not using your gift, I think, biblically, that the problem is you have a lack of faith. It's not that you don't know what your gift is or you're not good at your gift or someone else is better at your gift. It's that you don't have enough faith. I have friends who are gifted at different things. Like, uh, and when I was a young preacher, I preached my first sermon uh, in my church that I grew up in. The pastor wanted me to preach before I left. And uh, we had a Saturday night and a Sunday morning service, and both of those sermons were terrible, right? But there was this, uh, like, I believed that something could happen that maybe would not happen if I didn't do this thing. And then there were actual, I can share, it's really personal stories, but there were, like, people at that, when I preached, no, I'm just going to tell you, we're going to go over, so if you have a problem with that, uh, I preached this sermon and there was a couple there. I'm in Northern Ontario. There's a couple there from Syracuse, New York. I don't know why people come from Syracuse, New York. And they wanted tapes of my sermon, like as if it wasn't my first. And this is, you can tell how long ago it was when I said that, right? Cassette tapes. They recorded my sermon on a Saturday night. We had a large church and so we had a Saturday night, Sunday morning service. Even that a pastor would let someone like me preach for the first time in a, such a significant church. And so when I spoke this couple, they got multiple copies of the cassette tape so they could hand it out to their friends. We don't know who these people were. They didn't come with anyone. They weren't related to someone. 
And you might think I'm nutso, but I wonder if they weren't angels showing up just to encourage me because I thought it was a train wreck and they were like, hey, we're going to encourage you. I set a record for the most tapes requested. Now, 50% of those were from my mom, but, <laughs> but it was a record nonetheless. But these, I did this thing because I believed and every week I get up and I do this sermon thing because I honestly believe that your life can change on a Sunday morning. Like, I, I totally 100% believe that. And I stand up here and have the faith because I believe that can happen week after week. There, we have people who serve in their children's ministry. We have people who get here early and set up your chair and pray for the person who will be sitting in the chairs and because they honestly believe that what they're doing can change your life and they have the faith to be able to do those things. The working out of your gift isn't based on your talent or how good you are at it at all, at all. The working out of your gift and your service is based on your faith. Last verse, 1 Peter 4.10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful, um, as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Normally, when I preach these sermons, it's because we need more workers in some area. And we, right now, don't need some workers in some area. We have some ministries that need people, right? But we're not, like, desperate. We're not going to shut down the nursery next week if I don't manipulate three of you into taking care of babies, which should be the easiest ministry in the world to fill. But if, like, if you think that, and that is not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to tell you is that if you aren't using your gift, you are actually hoarding the grace of God, which is the opposite of Christianity. If you aren't using your gift to serve the church, then you are limiting the work of God in you and in this church. And as much as I care about this church as, as an organization and that we have things that we need to do and volunteer slots that we need to fill, I'm more concerned about you and about us. And if you're a person who follows Jesus and you are persisting in being a guest of this church, meaning you don't take any responsibility for what goes on, you show up week after week and you think your ministry is smiling at the people who sit around you, Smiling is not a spiritual gift. It's a normal physical function. If you are persisting in being a guest, persisting in being anonymous, persisting in keeping yourself from having family relationships at this church by not caring for the church and not serving the church, if this church ceased to exist and you were completely satisfied just parking in a different parking lot next week and going to a different place and being anonymous in that place, then you aren't living into everything that God has for you. Your life is unacceptable. You aren't, and you might feel like I'm guilting you. I'm just telling you the truth here because I don't want your life to suck and your life will suck if you don't use your gifts to serve the church. And your lack of using your gifts will actually limit the grace of God in working out to the people around you. If you've ever been in a family where there's one person who is wildly off the rails, it affects all the people in that family. 
And they might be really, really good. Like I know families who just don't talk about that one relative. They just don't bring them up at Thanksgiving at all. Nobody says, hey, where'd that guy go? But I know that families function better when everyone is functioning better. We will be as full of grace as each of us is full of grace. And so we want you to serve. We want you to care for this church, and we want you to show that you're caring for this church by serving. There's going to be four things, and I want you to be a four out of four grover. Because people that do all four of these things, they grow spiritually. People that do three out of four, maybe a season in their life or something like that, they might grow spiritually. People that do two tend to say, well, my life is kind of struggling. People that maybe do one say, I don't really feel connected here. People that do zero are gone in a few weeks. And that's not to be rude. That's what I see. And so if you want to grow spiritually, if you want to engage with what God has for your life, we want you to care for the church by serving. And you wonder, I don't know how to serve. We have a go table, and that's like the primary function that the go table can play for you. Walk up and say, I don't want my life to suck. Like you can say those words. Maybe you don't use that kind of language. I don't want my life to be bad. I'm a Christian. I don't use the language the preacher used. <laughs> and you can say, I don't want my life to be bad. I want to be an extension of the grace of God. What can I do? And they might say, well, you can do this. And you might say, that's the scariest thing in the history of the world. And they'll write your name down, right? And you can do it for two or three weeks. Or Most of our serving opportunities are like once a month deals anyways. And so you can do it for two or three months and be like, I'm terrible at this. I need to serve somewhere else. And you'll find your spiritual gift. And then you'll fan the flame. And then the grace of God will extend through you to everyone else. And you will have a better life because of it. And this whole church will have a better life because of it. And the next 150 people that show up at this church will think this is awesome because of the grace of God that's pouring through you. We're going to worship God. And I know I went long, so some of you need to go because you want to see the pregame. Let me tell you, it's going to suck anyway. It's going to be a blowout, so don't worry about it. <laughs> I want you to stand up and I want you to worship God like I was talking about because God saved you. You are the most unlikely Christians. And God has decided to save you. And so when we worship God, it's because of his openness of grace towards us and his opportunity for us to serve him. So let's stand, we'll pray, and then we'll worship if the band wants to come out. Jesus, we turn to you and pray that you would um, give us your gifts in an incredibly powerful way, that you would reveal yourself to us in a way that shows who you are, not how great we are, but how great you are. May you use us like 300 guys in a desert in the army of Gideon to change the future of the world, to change the future of this city, really to change the future of this church. May your grace work through each of us for the common good of each of us. We love you, Lord. Amen.